as people come back to their nature of their reflexes, Dhinacharya simply reinforces those things that your body's wisdom already knew. And how could that be a bad thing, right? Welcome to the Our Nature podcast with me, Alyssa Benjamin. Our Nature explores the methods, systems, and practices that bring us into greater alignment with the natural world. The opportunity to live a more joyful and harmonious existence is available to each of us right in this very moment. So join me and let's rediscover what comes naturally. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Our Nature. If you're a first time Our Nature listener, thank you so much for being here. I hope this is a space where you'll find inspiration and support as you explore ways to connect with the outdoors with more frequency and intention. As many of you know, I started this podcast because I was feeling disconnected from nature and had an intuitive sense that by connecting more deeply with the natural world, I could connect more deeply with myself and rediscover my inner nature. Now, almost two years in, that's exactly what's happened. Connecting with nature has helped me get out of my head, into my body, and into presence. And I've discovered that when I don't identify with my thinking mind, my inner nature is one of peace, awareness, spaciousness, and keen perception. The more present and grounded I've become, the more I feel an inherent belonging and connectedness to everyone and everything in my environment, the more I begin to experience myself as one small entity within a vast ecosystem. We live in a human-centric society, one that places outsized importance on our species. And yet when we truly experience ourselves as part of nature, we realize we're not as exceptional as we once thought. There's a beautiful passage about this perspective shift in Braiding Sweetgrass, one of my favorite books by Robin Wall Kimmerer. She writes, quote, In the indigenous view, humans are viewed as somewhat lesser beings in the democracy of species. We are referred to as the younger brother of creation. So like younger brothers, we must learn from our elders. Plants were here first and have had a long time to figure things out. They live both above and below ground and hold the earth in place. Plants know how to make food from light and water. Not only do they feed themselves, but they make enough to sustain the lives of all the rest of us. Plants are providers for the rest of the community and exemplify the virtue of generosity, always offering food. What if Western scientists saw plants as their teachers rather than their subjects? What if they told stories with that lens? In rediscovering my inner nature, I've become less caught in my egoic mind and instinctively more curious and concerned about the well-being of the plants, animals, and humans around me. I find myself yearning to learn all that I can about what I see, smell, hear, touch, and taste in the natural world because I have a felt sense of interconnection with all of Earth's inhabitants. For as long as I've been going through this transformation, I've been dreaming up ways I could share what I've learned and experienced with others. 
It is with this sentiment in mind that I'm so excited to announce that I'll be hosting a free seven-day journey back to nature, May 16th through May 22nd. It's called Renaturing, Uncovering Your True Nature Through the Senses. And during these seven days, nature will be our teacher. You won't need any prior knowledge or skills to participate, just a genuine curiosity and a willingness to, as my friend Jen Tardif says, move a bit slower so you can notice twice as much. Each day we'll be highlighting one of our senses and using that sense to experientially connect with the natural world through a specific practice. I'm also bringing together a group of incredible teachers and healers to share their wisdom and perspectives along the way. The immersion is completely free and open to everyone. This is the first time I've offered something interactive from our nature, and I couldn't be more excited. If you're interested in joining me and my featured guests, which I'll be officially announcing next week, be sure to subscribe to my newsletter by visiting ournaturepodcast.com and scrolling down to the bottom of the page, or by following Our Nature's Instagram at at ournaturealways, where I'll be sharing the link to sign up and register for the immersion. I am thrilled about this opportunity to connect directly with you, my incredible Our Nature community. So I hope you'll join me in May. With that, let's get into this week's episode. This week, I am so excited to welcome back Our Nature's first repeat guest, my Ayurvedic teacher, Dr. Baswati Bhattacharya. For those of you who have been listening since last season, you may recall that Dr. Baswati joined me on episode 27 to share a wonderful overview of Ayurveda. She talked about the doshas, the life-changing practice of an electricity fast, where Ayurveda and Western medicine overlap and where they differ, and the many uses of ghee. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly suggest you go back and listen before this one because we will not be discussing the foundational principles of Ayurveda in this episode. Instead, we'll really focus on the elements of dinacharya, which is the Sanskrit word for the concept of looking at cycles of nature and basing daily routines around these cycles to maintain optimum health. Before I go into more detail about what we discuss in this episode, here's a refresher on Dr. Paswati. She is a biomedical scientist, international health specialist, primary care physician, and holistic healer. She has a master's in neuroscience and pharmacology from Columbia University, a master's in international public health from Harvard University, and a doctorate from Rush Medical College. I also just learned that she was the first U.S. Fulbright scholar to exclusively research medical Ayurveda throughout India and teach at Banaras Hindu University. Today, she serves as the director of the Dinacharya Institute, teaching workshops, seminars, and courses for students, such as myself, who are interested in studying Ayurveda. In her book, Everyday Ayurveda, Dr. Piswati focuses on Dinacharya, or the habits that can change your life. In this conversation, we discuss why the body needs routine to maintain optimum health, 
everything that's involved in the early morning routine, how to create your morning altar, the natural cure for depression, how to approach your daily routine according to your dosha, how to bring more health and prosperity into your life, the best natural treatment for thyroid problems, and the number one thing you can do for your health. We actually didn't get through all of the daily routines within this episode, so I will be sharing a part two of this conversation soon. But I know that you guys don't like surfacey stuff, so I'd rather go deep, even if that means that we have to have multiple parts. Dr. Baswati is one of my absolute favorite people to speak with, and I hope you'll use the wisdom she shares to align your routines with the cycles of nature. When Dr. Baswati and I recorded this episode, she was in India, and I want to take a moment to send prayers to everyone in India who is suffering and dying from COVID. Many of my beloved Ayurvedic teachers are there, And as doctors, I know they are doing all they can to help those who are sick. So please join me in sending healing thoughts to everyone in India right now. They need our support. With that, let's dive into my conversation with my favorite teacher, Dr. Paswati Bhattacharya. Okay, Dr. Paswati, welcome back to our nature. You were, we spoke on season two, episode 27. And when we spoke in that episode, we, you shared the overarching themes and principles of Ayurveda. And I don't want, so I don't want to spend too much time on that, but for those who haven't listened to that episode or for those who are completely new to Ayurveda, how would you describe Ayurveda in a few simple sentences? Okay. So it's nice to be back, Alyssa. Thank you. I like explaining Ayurveda to people who absolutely are uninitiated because the smart ones that hear it for the first time resonate with it and totally get it. Ayurveda is about attuning yourself back to nature by just remembering that you are an animal living on this spinning globe as part of the ecosystem called Earth. And more clearly, the ecosystem of your particular environment, the town or city or place that you live, and the times of day and the cycles that are affected by where you live, the sun and the moon cycles, which all of us have to deal with, but also the climate and the humidity and the cold hot and how dry it is. All of these things affect the way in which you can optimally place yourself in an ecosystem. Ayurveda is all about that, number one. Number two, it's about what you take in and put out as part of that ecosystem, right? So what you're going to take in is obviously something that's around you, And as you take it into your being, which is not just your physical being, but it's like your chemical being, your biological being, your energy being, how you process that and send it out. So that's also Ayurveda. And we have all kinds of fancy Sanskrit words to 
help us understand that because Sanskrit has an immense understanding of the nature of the universe. And so all the vocabulary matches that much better than anything in the Romance languages or English. So we have words like dinacharya, which means daily routine, or ratricharya, which means nightly routine, or ahara. Ahara is the practices around eating. We have all kinds of beautiful routines. One is yoga, which most people in America have now heard of. And all of the vocabulary matches the fact that at that time, this is, you know, they say 5,000 years ago, but archaeological evidence shows that Ayurveda was going on 25,000 years ago. They found artifacts that have been suppressed for political reasons by Europeans who you know, came to India for conquest. But the evidence is there, and it says that for 25,000 years, humans followed these rituals and kept themselves in line and in balance. And when they would fall off doing these rituals, they would get sick. And so the science of Ayurveda was to remind them not only how to stay on track, but how to get back on track when they were off balance. So the last thing about Ayurveda I want to say is Ayurveda has a lot of modalities and tools. And so for the people who don't know and they say, well, what is Ayurveda about? Oh, is it like, you know, putting turmeric in your coffee? Um, there are herbs that are used like turmeric, like neem, like so many plants, medicinal plants. But Ayurveda talks about everything you take in as a modality. So it can be music, it can be the sun and gazing at the red-orange rays, which are like infrared healing at sunrise and sunset. It can be the way you exercise, it can be the way you meditate, it can be the way you prepare food. It can include every modality that you're going to take into your body. And so there are, you know, in a checklist, there are like 25 modalities we use in Ayurveda to help people shift. So it's a very expansive system of medicine. And I have to say, not only because I'm Indian, but because I'm a scientist, I like it because it works. My black bag of tools that I got as an MD, my black bag of tools I got as an MPH, and all the certificate courses I did in different modes of healing, all the research work I did as a pharmacologist, a neuroscientist, and then as an Ayurvedic, you know, PhD, these all over-educating trainings was me trying to figure out how do we heal? How do we make it happen? Ayurveda just came along and said, here's the toolbox. And so I like it because it's very, very much implementable. And so Ayurveda offers to each person, and it says you don't have to go to a doctor it belongs in your hands and your heart. And if you just take it and follow it, it's yours. So that's Ayurveda in a very large nutshell. I love it because it is so vast. It's so comprehensive. And if you're really in touch with yourself, ideally, it's very intuitive. Well, that's the key, what you just said, when you're in touch with yourself. That is one of the golden keys that you just said. I want to focus on Dinacharya in this conversation because, one, you wrote a book about it, so um, that's one that's one reason. But the other reason is because I do think it is a pathway to begin to know ourselves and get in touch with the practices that we can do to constantly be balancing and maintaining our own health. 
Let's start with the basics. Why would someone need a daily routine in the first place? What it what is it about a routine that is helpful to the body? So if you think of the body as a factory, any factory that's going to be successful, productive, efficient, has to have a certain input of the raw materials it's going to use. It has to have labor to process those materials, and it has to have an output. It has to have a product that it makes and sends out through the factory. Any factory that comes in randomly, you don't know who's going to come to work. You don't know when the shipments of raw materials are going to arrive. You don't know what you're going to produce and when you're going to produce it, who's going to haul it away. That is a chaotic, unproductive factory. And so our bodies, being factories that take in food regularly, take in water regularly, take in light regularly, take in love regularly, and air, of course, regularly, and the body which produces right energy by processing that food or produces activities by being able to sense what's going on in the environment and then sending stuff out like your poop and your pee and your sweat and um, various things you don't need in your body anymore. That has to be done on some kind of predictable basis. We may feel that we're very much randomly doing whatever we want, but if you look at every person most everyone has some kind of a routine. They have some part of the day where they go to the bathroom, right? Some people it's very regular, for some people it's not. And there are reasons for that, depending on the flows and how you control um, what's coming in and out of your body. People have places they go every day. If they don't go out, they have things they do in their home every day. They have times of the day when they tend to feel hungry. That also varies depending on what's going on. They have times that they sleep. Not all people sleep at night. They sleep sometimes during the day or various you know, things during various days. But if you look at most people, they do have certain elements in their daily routine, and that helps them manage that factory of input, production, and output. And that's really part of being an organism. It's part of being a biological being you know, as we travel through time and space. It's very basic to the idea of just living, if you just think about it in a scientific way. What Ayurvedic Dhinacharya does is gives a structure to it. It takes, what I have done is gone into the Sanskrit texts and found everything to do with Dhinacharya that I could find in the classic. You know, there are three classic authors, Shushruta, Charaka, and Vagvata. They lived in different times, and certainly those times are now being readjusted to the archaeologic data that are coming out. But certainly they were 5,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. And they looked at what should be done. They wrote them down in these stanzas or, or Sanskrit shlokas, as they're called. And I gathered them together, and I grouped them into six different areas. So early morning routine, how to clean your five senses, how to take a bath, how to live your life as a meditative act of beingness, what we call yoga off the mat, how to eat, and then how to complete the day with what's called ratricharya or the night routine, which is a subset of the daily routine, but it's obviously separate because it's the hours of the night. These are the structures that are given by these wise men so that these routines or randomness of the day that comes in life can be 
oriented to help the factory that you are to bring things in regularly so you don't starve and you don't suffer and send things out regularly so you don't become a hoarder or become full. Once you begin to outline what some of these are, I think people will begin to sense the reasons why they might help that factory work optimally. So I want to get into the early morning routine. What is the first thing? So someone wakes up in the morning. What's the first thing they should be doing? So the first thing is, when do you wake up in the morning? And that hopefully will be you waking up with the sun because of your internal uh, alarm clock. Now, people that do have an internal alarm clock say, I just naturally wake up. I don't have to think about it. I just, I just wake up. That's the ideal state. And usually people will wake up when either it's still dark outside and the black sky is starting to turn light, meaning like starting to turn dark blue, or they'll wake up if it's, you know, a very wintry day, it'll be very dark. If it's a summer day, it'll be a gray sky and they'll lay in bed for a bit, but they will have woken up naturally. That is the way that it should be. And you'll see it because the rooster crows early in the morning just before dawn. You'll see that the birds are out singing and playing before dawn. That is the natural way. So that's the first part of the morning routine. And then what happens after you wake up naturally? So people say, oh, I have to run. I have to get things done. If you wake up that early, you don't have to run. You get a little time for yourself. So as you wake up, Ayurveda says you should lie completely still before you roll over and grab your honey or before the kids start playing or, you know, your dog is there and you have to run and take her out for a walk, whatever your life routine is. Before all that, when you first wake up, you should lie still and listen to your belly and just hear what your belly is telling you. And your belly will usually say either, I'm hungry. Actually, that's not the healthiest thing for it to say that early in the morning. Or it will say, hi, good morning to you. I'm ready to poop. So you get up and poop. Or, hi, uh, I'm here, but I'm not in pain or anything. People that are not well will feel cramping. They'll feel all kinds of you know, stuff moving. They'll feel their belly is very much the present thing that's like kind of knocking on the door. That is an indication of what's going on. And you should pay attention to that. If you don't hear anything from your belly, that means your belly is healthy. That means your belly is exactly where it should be. No, you know, no knocking on the door. No indication that they want your attention. It wants your attention. And so listening to your belly is part of also connecting with yourself. Most people are not inside their bodies anymore. They have either been traumatized or they are so busy or they're so uh, distracted taking care of what they think are the basic parts of survival, like putting food on the table, having a roof over their head, being warm enough or cool enough. Um, making money for whatever expenses they need. Many people have addictions, so that's what's driving them. 
But if you just get rid of all of that stuff, there's a place where you need to connect with your own belly. So Ayurveda says, as you wake up, just lie still and listen to your belly. Connect to the second brain. The second brain is the gut. And then um, it says you should turn to the side and touch the ground with your hands before you climb out of bed and touch the ground with your feet. Why? This is kind of a spiritual ritual that says that you're walking all over Mother Earth. You know, in India, we talk about the, the soil and the ground not being dirt, dirty. You know, they say, oh, it's so dirty. They say that dirt is Mother Earth. And before you walk all over her all day, you should pray to her. Just put your hands and say, thank you for giving me another day to allow my feet to ambulate on this earth. And please guide my feet to fall in the right direction toward my goals, right? Because there's so many places where you could have turned left or you could have turned right. And you chose one side and you'll never know what would have happened had you turned the other side. And some people regret, some people wonder if from the beginning, before you reach that crossroads, if you can say, God help me or the powers of the universe help me so that when I get to that fork in the road, instinctively, I know I should turn in this direction. So that's a little prayer that says, please make me so um, aligned that I know that this is what I should do. So as that happens, most people, as they turn over, what's happening physiologically is your intestines are twisting. Like when you do a spinal twist in yoga or when you do Bhavan Muktasana and you take your knees and you twist them over to the side and come back, that torso being twisted will make the gut slowly um, wrench and then invoke that reflex. So a normal, healthy person, which is not all of us, obviously, because a lot of people have issues, but the normal, healthy person will then be like, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. And that's what starts the active movements of the daily routine. So then it's a, I think it takes about 11 to 14 minutes to do this next early morning routine. It's not long, but it just flows. And after you've done it every morning for a few years, it is so automatic that you can even do it when you haven't slept well and you just need to get your morning routine done. So you get up, you clear your bladder, you clear your bowels. Then you wash your hands with soap and water. So at least once per day, you know you've washed your hands. Then after your hands are clean, that's when you want to touch your face. You don't want to poop and then take water and wash your face without having you know, washed your hands properly. So you wash your hands, then you wash your face. And then there's something that I've not watched Americans do, but in India, it's very common. You lean over wherever the water is and you'll take water and splash with your eyes open, you'll splash water. And you do it 10, 15 times. So it's, you know, your eyes are open, usually looking upward, and you just splash, 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 splash. So you're getting water into your eyes. And then you take some water, fresh water, and you put it in your nose, closing one nostril, breathe in and breathe, expel out. Sometimes some goop will come out, which is good because you're cleaning out your nose. Same thing on the other side. And send it out. And you notice that one side has stuff and some one other side doesn't. Just be mindful of that. And then take some water and send it out. And now you've cleaned out the basic part of your senses. Grab a stick of neem or a bubble 
or a twig of some plant you could use, like even some pine. But in India, they would use neem because it's got antimicrobial properties. And in America, what people do now is they use a plastic toothbrush. They put toothpaste on it. We would use powder. So you have the stick and you dip it in some powder and then you, you bite the end of the stick so that the branch splays out like this and then that goes into your mouth as a toothbrush. Today, what people do is dentrifice is not powder, which is what it was supposed to be in the 1950s. It's become toothpaste. So they'll take the toothbrush, they'll put the toothpaste on, wet it, and then brush, brush, brush. And there are ways of brushing. You know, people that watched Captain Kangaroo remember the toothbrush song. And they clean their teeth. And then after that, and most people do brush their teeth. But in America, a lot of people brush their teeth after breakfast. The idea is to get all the microbiome stuff from your mouth out. So you brush your teeth first. And then you take a tongue scraper. I use a silver spoon that's got a kind of an oblong shape to it. It's a little bit sharp. And scrape your tongue and look at the stuff. If it's like saliva and it's filmy, but it's a clear film, fine. That's just saliva. But most people will have either a, a kind of slimy mess that's very vata. They'll have a yellowy stuff on it or, you know, kind of brown stuff. That's or they'll have cakey like cottage cheese goop that's kappa and it's telling you that's what's in your gut right now so it's an indication of how clean your gut is and most people will notice that after they've had food poisoning or chronic smokers they have a lot of that crappy crud on their tongue it's just a thick coating so you scrape that off and what you're doing is you're exposing your taste buds so that when food comes in they'll be able to actually accurately perceive what's going on. So you're cleaning, you know, you're cleaning off your tongue. And then after you have cleaned your tongue, you should rinse your mouth again so that any little particles that were there were, you know, were taken off. After that, you should keep some sesame oil in the bathroom, not coconut oil, sesame oil, and just take like a tablespoon, sometimes two tablespoons, depending on how much your mouth, you know, how big it is, and just swish it. Sesame oil re-enamelizes the teeth. Sesame oil whitens the teeth. Sesame oil lubricates the nerves. There's the maxillary and the mandibular, the trigeminal nerves. These are all nerves that help us move all these, you know, 43 muscles on our face. And that keeps our face symmetric. So some people have an asymmetric face. If you look at really healthy people, if you look at them and then you look at the, the mirror image of them, they look the same. Very few people have that kind of uh, healthy, symmetric face. Ayurveda says when you swish that oil, you lubricate, you know, when you go, your cheekbones open up and that small space between the muscle and the nerve opens up just enough to let a little bit of the oil in and it goes and it lubricates the nerves. This is actually a treatment, not only for TMJ disorders, but I've helped people with palsy, which is the facial droop to reestablish those muscles over time by doing this daily swishing. So obviously this is for healthy people. If you're, you know, a post stroke person, then I would have you do it slightly differently. I might give you a special oil with sesame, which is called Arimadas oil, or I might give you um, a slightly different prescription depending on your doshas. But in general, the swishing of the oil, just for a minute, 
while you're, you know, kind of uh, cleaning out and making sure you're hanging up the towel and getting everything ready. Do that. And then as you walk out of your washing area. It's not 20 minutes. I thought it was 20 yeah, minutes. Somewhere. I don't know where that came from, but I asked a couple of Ayurvedic experts and they said that they tell their students to do it for 20 minutes to keep them yeah. to shut up for 20 minutes because otherwise they're not quiet through the day. <laughs> that's that's what a couple of people told me. I said, are you kidding me? He said, yeah, I can't get them to shut up. So I tell them to put the oil in their mouth for 20 minutes. You only need it for a minute if you're healthy. And it's just part of your morning routine. If you want to do it for 20 minutes, do it. So after the one minute, you walk out of the washing area. You've now cleaned your senses. And now you want to fill them, right? Because that bowl that had crud in it is empty. And now it's waiting for something to fill it. So what you want to fill it with are harmony and wonderful, beautiful things. So they say the five senses should be filled. And that is the purpose of the altar. The altar is not to be religious. The altar is to fill your senses with that sense of what is divine within you. So look at something beautiful, a picture of someone you love, an auspicious, you know, maybe your favorite mountain, maybe a deity that you enjoy. If you love Mother Mary or Allah or Lakshmi or Shiva, choose that. Listen to something nice. Maybe you yourself sing. If you, you know, don't have a great voice for yourself, have a little bell. So a lot of people have a little bell and you'll hear them, you know, tinkle, tinkle, that bell. Smell something nice. So you might have a flower that you put there or you might light some incense or you have a, a, an aromatic candle. On your tongue, you are doing your mantra, which also helps your ear, but you should also taste. So sometimes you'll have a little... Um, of sugar or uh, raisin. My mom used to use raisins and not sugar. And or some grains of rice, which she would put on the tongue. And then the last one is touch. So touch, the fifth sense, the touch is a soft piece of cloth or the petal of the flower. Fill those five senses with kind of an, uh, an index, a compass of something that is wonderful. And then the last is to look into the mirror. See the divine within you. See the powers that you have and see how you present yourself to the world. If you happen to have like a little piece of toothpaste on your, on your cheek and you don't look at yourself, you're going to walk through the whole day with that on your face. That's not a great way to present yourself to the world, right? Maybe it's not what you want to do. So better is to look at yourself in the mirror and then head to the kitchen to sip your hot water. I've just explained it using a lot of detail, but when you start doing it, it's very fast. It's very, very fast. And the entire routine of 11 minutes sets you for your day so that you're cleaned out and you've inserted good things and now you start your day with a sense of purpose. That daily routine seems to be just, eh, you know, optional things. But the people that do it write to me and say how much their life has changed, how much the way in which they perceive things has changed. Why? Because their senses are clean, right? If you have a filter on top of your eyes and you can't see straight, as they say, then you don't see straight. You see crooked. You see things that aren't there. And that creates a lot of disharmony between you and the world around you because you're seeing things that aren't there. And people will not be able to relate to you because you insist that this is the way it is because of your senses seeing things in the wrong way or not wrong, I don't like the word wrong, but see things in a, in a way that's not accurate. 
to what's going on in the world because you've got those filters on your eyes, right? And that's where a lot of the paranoia and fears magnify because when you cannot trust your senses, when you cannot trust what you see, when you cannot trust what you're hearing, then how do you connect with the world around you? I love everything you mentioned because our senses connect us also to, I mean, we needed our senses for survival thousands of years ago. I think we've lost touch with a lot of different aspects of our senses in a maybe a very conscious and intentional way because we don't need them for that survival. But I think the practice of waking up and filling cleaning out sort of all the gunk from the day before and then filling your senses with sweet and beautiful things is such a wonderful way to create an intention of having like a sweet and beautifully unfolding day rather than waking up and grabbing your phone and starting to feel tension and cortisol rushing through your body. Yeah. And feeling anxious And I also love that idea of when I think about connecting with nature, I think about this idea that the way that you connect into nature and you connect to presence is through your senses. What are you smelling? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you touching? And so in some ways, and maybe this was part of why these, this practice came about, it's really inviting you towards presence, being incredibly present right at the beginning of your day. Beautifully said, Alyssa. And, you know, it's so true. Um, I want to relate that to something that's going on right now. In the world, there are a lot of depressed people. And I've had several patients contact me and say, you know, I was so successful and today I'm really depressed and I don't know who to tell because I'm supposed to be the pillar in my family, in my job, in my community, and I'm just really depressed. I've had unspoken things happen in the last year. I've lost friends. I've lost, you know, the doorman that I used to say hello to every day for however many years died of COVID. My so-and-so person died of COVID. It could be a colleague. It could be a family member. It could be a beloved uh, person. And they don't know how to cope. And they have very, very um, a conscious state that they are in depression. And they don't know how to cope with it. And most people know that the slippery slope of taking an antidepressant is something that has to be a very calculated decision. Because... Antidepressants are not easy. They do have a lot of side effects. They do help people who are in a very bad state, but you have to figure out if you're in that very bad state to do the risk benefit, right? And so they say, what can I do? Can Ayurveda help me? I say, well, you can help you. Ayurveda can guide you as you help yourself. And that statement you made a couple of minutes ago about presence is what I've actually used as the crux of my counseling. So the guru says that depression is about the ego. 
when you have an inflated ego and you mm-hmm. think that this is the way things are supposed to be and they are not this way, that is when you get depressed. When you're living in the present of what your ego thought should have led you to, you know, from there in the past to today, or you should get this and you haven't gotten it yet and you're looking at the future of what you should have gotten. I'm 39 years old and I should have had three kids by now. I'm 45 years old and I should have half a million dollars in the bank. I'm, you know, 25 years old and I'm not married yet. I'm, you know, 20 years old and I haven't gotten into the college I wanted to get. These are all expectations. These are not living in the present. These are living in the past or the future. And those are all about your ego and what you expect and demand from the world around you. So if you leave your ego and you say, let me just exist in the ecosystem and where I am right now in the present is what I have. Let me take inventory of what I have rather than all the things I don't have. Instead of being goal oriented, you know, and and um, having, you know, those business books that always tell you how to get more. They're actually traps in a way because what they do is they tell you that what you are is not enough. You need to be getting more. And that's taking you into the future, what you want or what you should have gotten out of your past that you didn't harvest properly and how you can shift that and harvest more. And so when you're in the present moment and say, this is what I'm grateful for, I have this, you know, instead of why don't I have the latest iPhone? I'm so lucky that I have an iPhone in the first place. There are so many people that don't have an iPhone. Or, wow, I have this glass of water here. There are so many people that have to work hard just to get clean water, including people in Texas, you know, not just in like some random poor refugee camp, but in the United States of America, which has recently been called an underdeveloped country because of our inability to provide for our citizens the gun violence and all the different things that keep people from being able to feel safe in their present. If you can be in your present and say, this is what I have, and I'm so grateful for it. That's the first key of moving out of depression. So I just want to offer that as a, as a tool for people, especially the smart people who know that they're feeling depressed and cannot pull themselves out of it. Just start the exercises of gratitude. And Dhinacharya's five senses, right, of filling your mind with those senses as soon as you clean out the gunk, as you said, that is one of the exercises of bringing you into the present so that you can sense right now what's going on in the world. The last of those five, I just want to... remind us of this is I said look in the mirror so one of my very smart students said to me well what did people do a thousand years ago when there were no mirrors and Ayurveda also had a solution for that it said that you should go to your pot of ghee and look in your pot of ghee because in that golden ghee in that golden vessel you can see your clear reflection reflection. And I thought that was just so beautiful. So when I get people started on their daily routine, like people who might be listening today, first you assess which of those 12 things we talked about that you already do and say, great, I already do these things. Then you adjust those things that you already do 
to be optimal for your dosha. So in the summer, when it's very hot outside, you want to have a toothpaste that is cooling. So we use fennel. Tom's of Maine has great toothpaste um, options. You know, there's anise, there's licorice. You want to use things that are more sweet. In the vata months, the fall, the autumn, when it starts to get windy and dry and cool, you want things that are more moist. So licorice is actually very moistening. You want to use cinnamon that has its own natural oils in it and warming things like cinnamon or cardamom, uh, turmeric. When you adjust your every daily routine for those particular things that your body needs and you get what you're already doing to be spiffed up, you'll start noticing change. Then you go in and you start introducing the things that you would like to do but you haven't been doing, like scraping your tongue. Go out and get a copper tongue scraper. Don't use the plastic ones. Stainless steel is okay, but copper is better. Um, or a silver spoon like I use. Because silver is obviously expensive, but most people in America can afford one silver spoon and they could carry that around with them. And then make a little altar just outside of your bedroom or bathroom. And it can just be like a box or it can be your night table. And you just put, you know, all the things on there, the candle, the bell, the um, picture, the, the cloth. And slowly as you build this, and you introduce step by step, you will come into a place where your morning routine becomes so automatic and so beloved because you have consciously put each element there. Where does water factor into that? Because there's in the Western world, it's the, it you, you hear that upon waking, you should drink. I mean, there's all sorts of different types of prescriptions about how much you should be drinking in the morning. What does Ayurveda say about yeah. intaking water in the morning? So different Ayurvedic texts were written in different parts of the country, which obviously had different access to water. The hardcore Ayurvedic recommendation says that when you sleep, you should have a little copper vessel that's covered with a little bit of water in it. And so when you wake up, you take your hand and fold the four fingers and take the thumb and put it next to this. And you'll see there's a little cup that's made. That cup has a certain volume that's particular to you. And you should put it flat and pour water into it. And as you pour water into it, there's just a you know, small amount that will come in, maybe, maybe like 10 mLs, two teaspoons. And then you should drink it. And it should be drunk like this. So as you take it in, that water not only lubricates your mouth, but all of the bacteria and goop that have um, built up through the night, most people know they have that morning mouth taste, that gets sent down, actually gives signals to the rest of the body saying, these are the bacteria that are there, this is the goop she's producing, this is the stuff that's going on in the mouth as the entrance way. Let's produce the enzymes to make sure we digest those. That's one. The mouth microbiome is also a signal to the other kind of areas. Oh and it also puts just a small amount of water in your belly and says, wake up. She's up now. So that's the original way to do it. That is not always done by people. 
because people have all kinds of ideas, which are actually wrong, about how you shouldn't put anything in your mouth before you brush your teeth. It is true you should clean out your mouth. But before you clean out your mouth, you should take an inventory of the information that your mouth and tongue are giving you. And then the other part that water comes in is at the end of the morning ritual, when you've looked at yourself in the mirror, you head to the kitchen and you go and boil yourself some hot water. So in the summer and in the winter, people say, well, do we boil hot water? My Ayurvedic doctor told me not to have hot water. He told me to have cool water. I was told not to do this. I was told that's wrong, this wrong. You should boil your water. And then the temperature at which you drink it is up to the season, the climate, your own body, and a bunch of other factors like that. So if it's freezing cold outside, you can take that boiled water and drink it very, very, very warm, as warm as you can tolerate, just plain water. The second cup can be your ginger tea, your lemon water, your lemon with uh, your spices, your coffee, your tea, whatever else you want. But the first cup should be just that clean water. If it's summer, you don't need to drink it hot, but you should boil it full boil and then let it cool. And as it gets back down to room temperature, then drink it. You should not be putting it in the fridge because that kills a prana. Just like if I put you in the fridge, it'll kill you and your prana. You should not take it and balance the temperature by throwing ice cubes into it because this source of water has a different energy than the water you just boiled. And the reason you should boil your water is because it separates out all of those hydrogen bonds that were in the water molecules and takes away not just the energy imprint, you know, if you believe in entanglement theory and electrons and where they are stuck together and where they were before and how they're related to each other, it breaks all those bonds and makes the water completely empty so that it can capture all of the energetic stuff that you're needing to get out of your body. So when you drink it, it clears that down and out. It clears out all of the stuff that's stuck, not just in your mouth because you're already brushed, but from the back of your tongue all the way down, which you didn't brush. Most people can't brush that far back. So what happens to stuff from the back of your tongue all the way down your esophagus to your stomach? It's still sitting in there as, as the, the gunk that you said earlier. So that gets pulled down and out. And that warm water, if it's warm or hot, will turn on the switch for the gastrocolic reflex, which is a physiologic free, free, which is a physiologic reflex that modern medicine discusses, that the gastro, which is a stomach, connects with the colon, which is the colic, and says, time to send things down and out. So if you didn't already poop when you first woke up just by sitting up and twisting and touching the ground, then having that hot water will make you poop. So my mom told me when she was around 50 or so that she didn't used to need it before, but she knew she was getting older because she needed to have a cup of hot water in order to get herself to poop in the morning. And at that time, I didn't know Ayurveda as well as, you know, I, I have learned later. But I told her that, Mom, you know, your, your instinct, your gastrocolic reflex is being provoked or being like reoriented by having that hot water. So that's good. It's cleaning you out. So as people come back to their nature of their reflexes, Vinacharya simply reinforces those things that your body's wisdom already knew. And how could that be a bad thing, right? I, so I have a couple questions. The first is 
other than considering the temperature of the water based upon your dosha or what's ha- what's happening for you, maybe like the pre- the dosha that um, is currently predominant depending upon your health situation and the season, are there any other modifications to the dinacharya that you do in different seasons? Yes. So it's not just the season, it's the climate that you're in. So there's a lot of humidity involved. Actually, you know, people don't talk about this, but um, in Vintraya Masterclasses, we spent a whole session on water. And there is a part of the oldest, one of the oldest textbooks in the world called the Rig Veda that begins with a mantra to water. It's called the Apta Sukta. Apta Sukta means the energy, the subtle energy of water. So the science of water and how it affects the human body is absolutely integrated into so many of the rituals of Dinacharya. And it says that if you have different humidity in your environment, you're going to need water in different ways. We know that. Every chef knows that you cook slightly differently based on the humidity. Or if you go to an oven in Denver, it's a different temperature and a different time for cooking than if you're sitting in New York or Miami. And the fact that the chefs know it makes it obviously commonplace and real, but they are, you know, they're actually living chemists. Vinacharya says your routines are going to vary based on how much humidity you have in your environment, which is obviously based on the seasons, which you just said, but also on the altitude and the way the humidity changes with the seasons, but also with the day and also with the time of day. So you have to account for all of those for you as an individual based on the humidity, based on the temperature, the hot and the cold, because cold contracts and heat obviously induces movement and uh, the vata is, you know, moving around anyway, but the heat will um, make everything more chaotic, more chanchal is the word in in, uh, Sanskrit. Um, And there are... Other factors that Ayurveda asks you to take account of, one of which is your own personal dosha, which you've talked about a couple of times, but we haven't detailed. You know, if you have a tendency for high vata or a tendency to go stagnant and have high kapha, that's going to mean your rituals have to be slightly different, slightly oriented differently. Does that make sense? It does. And so could you just, I know because it's so personalized, but could you give an example like, Say something that's interesting is I just moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. So now I'm in a much drier climate, a much hotter climate. And of course, I have a pitta and vata. I mean, I have a vata imbalance, but I have a pitta imbalance that is pushed by the vata. So basically, it's like I'm in an aggravating environment to what I'm already experiencing how would I account for that in my daily routine? Okay, so, you know, I also had moved from New York. I mean, I went to high school in Princeton, and then I lived in L.A. for a while. Um, I was born in San Francisco, so I know the Bay Area's humid climate versus the hot, dry climate of L.A. So when you move to California, things are three hours earlier. And one of the great things about California is there's a real culture of waking up early. There's a whole culture of, you know, meetings at breakfast time. New York breakfasts are not that common, except for a very small elite group of us who like really do a lot during the day. 
Um, but in, in LA, it's very common to wake up at four or five, go for a run, go up hiking in the hills. Um, you know, when I was in Cal when I was in LA, actually a few years ago, I had a place in Pasadena up near Altadena. So we could just go hiking, take the dog for a walk and go hiking in the morning. So that early morning routine becomes natural. If you understand Vata Pitta Kapha times of day, you know that from just before dawn, four o'clock till about seven are the Vata times of the day. So for someone that has a tendency for Vata, they say, oh, but it's Vata time. That's bad for me, right? And what I say is think of Vata as a wind that can corral the hurricane. So if you are a hurricane of imbalanced Vata, if you can use the winds around, the winds of change, right, that are, that are invoked during that time to take the hurricane and kind of guide it. So it's still spinning, but instead of spinning all over, you use it to kind of corral it. Then you can take the wind and bring it into a place of more control. It's just like taking a wild horse, a young horse, and giving it a corral. So it's still wild, it's still roaming, but the, the picket fence that you put around it helps guide it so it has a sense of control that it's not going to get lost. That vata time of day is the time that you should take your very unwieldy mind, your unwieldy gut, your unwieldy body, and institute routines that are going to give you structure. And that is a wonderful thing if people can actually do in the morning. So it can mean sitting inside and doing pranayam, which is controlled breathing. It can mean going for a run, which is controlled movement. It can mean doing your yoga practice, which is also controlled mind-body yoking. The hurricane is going on, but you're controlling it. It can mean... Um, for writers, so, you know, I've been writing for the last few years, I wake up early in the morning and my mind is full of ideas. This is the vata that's completely out of control. And what I do is I set up a structure. I have, actually, Robert Svoboda taught me this. He said, if you're going to be a writer, there's something you have to do, and it's called writing. So you wake up in the morning and you turn on your computer, and I have a whole ritual of how I turn on my computer, <laughs> get my, you know, this plugged in, that plugged in, turn this off, get this ready and just sit and write. And that corralled structure is controlling the vata. For some people, it means conditioning, like a certain pair of socks that they wear, or a particular yoga mat, or dhuri, a, a cotton blanket that they roll out. And all of those rituals, which are structure, help corral the vata. So that is one way in which you can take something that is very unwieldy, that we're not taught in the Western society, and use what's absolutely guided by uh, Ayurveda, which says, deal with your vata. Here are 108 tricks. Use the one that works for you. Are there times that people shouldn't do aspects of dinacharya? Yes. So when you yeah. say dinacharya, it's not a set of hardcore written in stone routines. It is guidelines. And so the dinacharya is still there. It's just a different set of guidelines. So if you've just birthed a baby and you're up all night feeding or you're up every two hours feeding, then dinacharya is still there for you. But your dinacharya for the first 40 days after um, birth of your baby 
or in the first year of the baby's life, include a dinacharya, which allow you to sleep during the day, which is called Diva Swapna. Diva Swapna is considered to be bad, bad, bad. You shouldn't sleep during the day. It's bad for you. It'll ruin your night sleep. But for a new mother, it is a good thing. For someone that's just convalescing, coming out of the hospital, yes. If you're super young, like a baby, or you're even before adolescence, or if you're um, retired after the age of, let's say, 60 or 70, those are people that can get up a little bit later. The guidelines that we think of as typical Dhinacharya guidelines are for people who are healthy and in their very productive stages of life. Dhinacharya doesn't say, oh, this doesn't apply. It just says, change it around. So if you're sick, there's also a guideline for every disease, and you'll see them just embedded in the chapters that talk about the disease. For example, uh, we talk about grahani. Grahani is about gastrointestinal diseases. And um, in fact, at Dhinacharya Masterclasses, we spend time on this because it's such a central part of people understanding what's going on with their bodies. So the Grahani chapter of the sacred texts says that if you have indigestion, if you have food poisoning, if you wake up and your belly is talking to you and giving you definite signals, you need to listen to those and adjust your routine, the one that I just gave a little earlier, to these things. So for example, it says that if you have food poisoning or indigestion, you should not brush your teeth. What? I shouldn't brush my teeth. Yeah. So, you know, Baswati, the scientist, sat there and thought about it for a while. Why would that be? Why would that be? What's the logic in that? The yukti, as they say. What's the logic in that? And suddenly it occurred to me what the logic was. So then I went and spoke with the guru. Yes, when you brush your teeth, you get rid of all the bacteria, which is all the information. It's like when your computer crashes and there's a crash report, and you have to look at the crash report to decipher where the virus was, or, you know, that's for people that don't have Macs. Um, but for, you know, for a crash report to say, why did this happen? You want that information to get to the right place. So if you brush your teeth, it's like erasing that crash report. So indigestion or food poisoning is giving you information in your mouth by the bacteria that are there, the icky ones, as well as the, you know, the imbalanced things that are going on. You're supposed to just have the water and drink that down and not brush your teeth that morning. So that's definitely something that, you know, most people would say. Even if you have chronic? No, this is for, uh, well, if you have chronic indigestion, yes. But Ayurveda also says that if you have chronic indigestion, and you don't brush your teeth in the morning, you should have your hot water, do the rest of your routine, and then remember that neem stick? That neem stick that you're having is actually going to add the taste, which is that very bitter and that very astringent. It's actually going to alter your indigestion. And you should know that that morning is not the morning that you should be having you know, your um, bulletproof coffee. That's the morning that you should take some grahani medicine. So grahani means, you know, that indigestion or gut imbalance. You should take some cumin and some coriander seeds, fresh grind them, boil them, and then have them with a little bit of black pepper you can also put. 
have that as a tea in the morning, and that is going to cook away that indigestion. It's going to get rid of that ama. And then by the middle of the day, you will feel differently. Now, most people in America then make the same bad choices because they're like, okay, my indigestion's gone. Let me continue with what I was doing. And they continue eating the same crappy food. So then they get indigestion the next morning. And then they have to go through the same ritual. But if you break that cycle and say, I'm going to have cumin and coriander because I have a tendency for indigestion. And then I'm going to make the choice not to have that cappuccino or not to have that whatever it was. And I'm going to adjust my foods. Then you're not going to have indigestion anymore. Because indigestion is just an indication that you need to step up your game of getting rid of your toxins, your ama. And you need to have chronically higher levels of fire to digest the food that you choose to bring in. The people that do physical exercise, they are the ones that have the best um, digestive fire. And it's actually a prescription to do physical exercise, not in high amounts, but to 50% of your capacity and several times during the day. So I have a 50-10 ritual where I say, if you have indigestion, Sit for 50 minutes and then do 10 minutes of housework, 10 minutes of gardening, 10 minutes of, you know, some physical activity. Don't go for a 50-mile run or a five-hour bike ride if you have indigestion because it's too much exercise for the energy that you don't have because you have chronic indigestion. Do 50 minutes of something and then do 10 of exercise. And that physical exercise builds up energy. And anyone that's done this knows that they don't get totally overtired because they're on you know a low reserve but that 10 minutes kind of stokes the fire it's like building a campfire by using a certain amount of small dry branches to stoke the fire and not doing the two extremes of either putting too many dry branches or of throwing gasoline on the fire right it's stoking the fire until it builds up to a beautiful warm campfire So Ayurveda talks about these metaphors that work in the world around us and says, do the same metaphor for your body, understanding that you are a part of the ecosystem and that this works in a similar way. Is that helpful? It it completely is. And I, I can imagine so many people are starting to, even if they're new to Ayurveda, they're starting to put the pieces together of the overarching principles, which are just about constantly checking in with your environment and balancing yourself in relation to it. And really that's how we achieve optimum health, optimum happiness. It's essentially what this podcast is about, living in alignment with the natural world. It's why when I found Ayurveda, I felt like I had unlocked like the secrets of the universe because I, it just was so, it spoke to me in such like a deep and intuitive way. And I call a lot of what I talk about on the podcast when I talk about undoing like a lot of the cultural programming and returning to your most natural self as like this great remembering because it's sort of when you turn towards those aspects, it feels like they were there all along waiting for you to discover them. It reminds me 
of what I think my body is always telling me. When you talk about the dinacharya and when you talk about balancing, it's like I can tell my body's like, yes, remember these things because it's asking that of of me. It feels like a very intuitive process. So I'm hoping that people listening will, if they check in with themselves, will begin to feel the same way. That's right. And you know, the tools and the supports to make it happen are not complicated. Some people get these big lists that are written by these great authors of Ayurveda from the last 50 years. And they say, oh my God, I read his book and it was so complicated. How do I make this happen in my life? I can't do it. But if you use supports, it's like, you know, those little sticks you put down so that as your tomato plant grows, it has a support on it and it doesn't like fall over as the fruits become heavy. In the same way, as your life becomes full and you have more and more things and you feel like you're not supported, Dinacharya gives you support. It gives you ways in which you can not only align yourself with nature, but it gives you things that will help you adjust to the little things that tend to go into an imbalanced state when you're doing too much. So setting up those rituals, I think, is a big part of just making them um, integrated into life. And then the biggest part after that is to watch to be observant, and to see where things worked. If you notice that all you did was wake up 15 minutes earlier and every week another 15 minutes earlier and suddenly your body started waking up at 6 o'clock and pooping and you'd evacuate completely and feel lighter at the bottom of your belly, those signs and symptoms that go with each part of dinacharya, right, you notice that about yourself. You're like, wow, I feel great because I pooped properly in the morning. That is a big, yes, that is a big ritual for young mothers who say, oh, now I realize that the reason I wasn't pooping is because by the time I woke up, the kids are already up. My spouse needs, you know, this and this and this done. I need to get this and this and the kids have to get out to school, need to make lunch, need to get this done. The milkman comes and this happens and that happens. And I wasn't able to find that 10 minutes to go to the bathroom and sit and do my pooping and clean up and do my rituals and then, you know, wash my hands, wash my face. And that's why it wasn't getting done. And just by getting up a little earlier, all of it fell into place. And guess what? So the biggest aha moment that I had is after this book came out, I had people starting to write to me emails. And I don't think anywhere in the book I say, please write to me and tell me every detail of your life. But people will write me long, several-page emails about every detail from when they get their erection to, um, you know, what, what their lab tests were on their last medical visit. And one of the most amazing things that I have found is a series of people talking to me about how their thyroid was quote-unquote disease, right? Their thyroid was off and they were taking medicines and they started doing dinacharya and suddenly everything kicked back in and they got off of their thyroid medicine, which they don't need anymore. And to me, that is such an amazing thing. So again, I put on my scientist hat, like, why would that be? And I came up uh, very clearly with what I think is going on, which is the clock genes. You know, if you We've talked about clock genes before. If you look at the biochemical way, not the ecosystem way of the body, but the biochemical way, 
our eyes sense light, they make melatonin in the evening. There's a whole cycle of daily rhythm, which is just over 24 hours. And the clock genes click and they interlock with each other organ to say, okay, here, I'm making this product of melatonin and handing it off to you. Hypothalamus takes it, makes another product, gives it the pituitary. Pituitary gives it to the thyroid and to the insulin, which is the, you know, the pancreas. And all the different hormones interlock and create different functions. The master hormone of the thyroid is then kind of put back into balance. And by doing your morning routine, cleaning out your senses, and waking up at a time that you can actually take in the infrared rays, which align your clock genes, people get rid of their thyroid problems. And I just find that to be extraordinary because in my medical schooling, I never learned any of that. And yet Ayurveda very humbly whispers to us, just do these things. The magic will reveal itself. Just do these Dhinacharya rituals. And I find that to be so extraordinary that I, as, as like you, I have embraced Ayurveda because it works, not just for me, but for thousands of patients. it really speaks to how the body wants to heal and it wants to heal when we live in harmony with nature and with our own nature. And I think that's a perfect example of the healing power of the natural world. After you do the early morning routine, you know, the next section is to clean out the senses in a deeper way for the people who have chronic problems with them. And so there's an entire list of um, hints, helps, and interventions for cleaning out your eyes in case you have chronic problems, dry eyes or floaters or you know, blood pressure problems, which is called glaucoma, or problems seeing because of chronic diabetes. How to clean out your nose in case you have chronic sinusitis or you get a lot of phlegm and, and what's called coryza in your, in your uh, nose. How to clean out your mouth how to clean out your ears so you hear properly, how to improve your sense of touch. And those rituals are given in the texts. And they're not for everyone in every day, but they are for the people who need those adjustments. And it says, here, do these things for a while, get yourself cleaned out, and then you can just enjoy your early morning rituals without having to do these other things. So as you mentioned earlier, 20 minutes of sesame oil in the mouth, that's for people who have pralapa. Pralapa means saying unnecessary things, talking too much, and really misutilizing the power of your tongue. And how do you get people back into harmony with that? You make them shut up by putting oil in their mouth for 20 minutes. It's an intervention that's actually designed to help people cure themselves of loose tongue. The biggest thing about Dhinacharya that people need to understand is that these are guidelines. These are not hard set rules. And that there are sufficient, I won't call them exceptions. They are just tailoring for different people of different ages in life. 
different settings, whether you're in your home environment or you're on a like, travel mode, if you are in a certain climate that has humidity versus dry, hot versus cold, and your own internal environment, how dry you are. So, you know, how much oil do you need to put into your body? Maybe you need to adjust every part of your morning routine, put a little bit of oil in so that you're not so dry and rough. These kind of adjustments that are there are about the gunas, right? The qualities of the world around us and how to adjust your routine so that you slowly, regularly, but insidiously bring it in. The daily routine is not a hard set of rules that you must do in the same way every day. In fact, even I vary my dinacharya slightly depending on what's happened. And ultimately, the early morning routine doesn't start just before dawn. It starts the night before when you choose to go to bed, what you choose to drink before you go to bed. If you have a liter of water before you go to bed, you're going to have a different night than if you don't drink that liter of water and force your kidneys to be pushing stuff through. How much alcohol you drink, if any, whether or not you smoke, drink, do drugs, how much sex you had. Is it the right season for having raucous sex, which is the deep winter? Or is it summer when you should take it a little bit easy because it's so hot outside that you're depleting your body's energy? There are ways of having intimacy and sweet time with your loved one, your intimate partner, without the bump and grind. And so to engage in that sneha, which means love and unctuous connection, and um, sneha actually means to bond together as well, to stick together like oil does, but sneha means love. So how do you have love in your life but not overdo certain parts of the ritual? That night routine that I'm talking about, all those different choices, also looking at your calendar and saying, what time do I need to be up in the morning tomorrow and what do I need to do tomorrow? Getting all of that ready and then going to bed is part of the early morning routine. And so if you are not conscious in your evening time, you're going to have a poor sleep. Maybe you have poor sleep hygiene that no one's talked to you about. Maybe your parents never taught you how to get ready for bed. All of those things come in the dinacharya early morning because they prep you for being able to wake up and be full of unbounded energy like a four-year-old kid when you wake up in the morning. And when you're 40, 50, 60, and you don't have that kind of energy. And you say, oh, well, I'm just aging. No, it's not that you're just aging. It's that your dinacharya in the evening wasn't right to get you ready for an unbounded energy-filled morning. So Ayurveda guides you through these. And this whole part of early morning routine needs to be thought about by each person differently. Right? You need to make your own list, see which things you're doing and see how you need to adjust them according to your own doshas, your own lifestyle, how many people you have around you that depend on your, you during the waking day, who you have with you at night. If you sleep with your dog, your husband, and your kid, you have a very different night routine than someone that sleeps, let's say, alone, right? What kind of sheets you use, how often you change your pillowcase, right? If you change your underwear every day, why don't you change your pillowcase every day? 
it's disgusting that all the stuff that's dripping out of the orifices of your face falls on your pillow and you don't change your pillowcase every day, you know, just like we change our underwear every day, hopefully. So all of these little, little, little things are part of the routine. And Ayurveda tells you, you know, do these things and watch your life change. And I'm imagining people listening to this getting really excited and thinking, oh, my God, I want to do all of these different things. And I, I have a whole list. But I want to offer one thing. What is one thing that would make a huge change in people's lives? The biggest like unifying thing that I would say is to focus on your mind and heart, right? The word for mind and heart is the same in Sanskrit, um, but the brain mind and the heart mind being united with the body really orients us. And of course, the practice of that and the teachings and, and interventions around that are called yoga. But to wake up in the morning and just have gratitude for what you have in the present moment, I think, is the one thing that people are missing when they go into anxiety and depression and have abuse in their home life. You know, they have bad marriages, they have sick kids, they have um, a dirty home, a dirty bed. Dirty means like untidy. Um, When they don't have their act together, they have separated their mind from their body and they don't have gratitude. So to be in the present moment and say, I've just woken up, whatever time it is, I'm so grateful for A, B, C. I'm so grateful for these things. That actually is a thing that's going to catapult you through the day and say, today, what do I want to do? And if you cannot say anything you want to do, that is the point where you need to readjust. One of the things we do to help readjust is have that early morning routine ready so that by the time you finish those 11 minutes of uh, rituals, those 12 rituals, you can say, yes, I did something today. I accomplished something today. I took care of my senses, cleaned them out, and then refilled them with wonderful stuff. So the attitude is really just such a big, big factor. And it's such a big factor among people that I see in my practice who are among the most successful. They have money. They have um, families. They have all the things that someone would say are the recipes for a good life. And yet they're not living the good life, what's called hitta, ahitta, so the wholesome, unwholesome life because they don't have that gratitude, because they don't take time to really appreciate the things that they have. Sometimes they've earned those things. Sometimes they've been gifted those things. Sometimes those things were accident. But to just have gratitude that they have those things is huge. It's simple. It's sometimes taken for granted, but it's huge. And I think that's the one unifying thing that I would ask everyone to consider how much you or how often or how regularly do you wake up in the morning and just say, I am grateful for one, two, three. So before I know I already asked you the last five questions of our nature, but things change, people change, you're at, you're at a different point in your life. And so I'm going to ask them again and we okay. can 
we can go back and see if any of them were the same. The first one is, what is your favorite place in nature? I love the forests. What is the animal, mineral, or plant that resonates with you the most? I have been studying Rasa Shastra intensively, and the mineral that I love is gold. What is one thing we can do right now to connect with the natural world and bring more harmony into our lives? I think every person should take a bowl of water and put it outside either their windowsill or outside their front door or in their garden so that birds have water. And if they're around a place with animals roaming, then you know, make it into a a small pond or pool so that the animals have water. The scarcity of water in so many parts of the world makes animals suffer needlessly and they are part of our ecosystem. And every single person can put water out for birds. As the spring comes, maybe there's a lot of natural rain, but if you're in a place that doesn't have that, put the, put the seeds out, put the water out for the birds. I'm going to do that. What is the greatest lesson nature has taught you? That poop is one of the most sacred things out there. (laughs) Pooping every day, having access to cow poop, um, being mindful of where, you know, poop is. Like I see bird droppings and I see uh, just poop. And I always think about how if I could get my patients to poop better, how their lives would shift. So yeah, poop has been one of those things in my world in the last few months. Complete this sentence. Nature brings me. Calm. I mean, we could keep talking for forever. I love talking with you so much and learning and it was such a gift. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of my conversation with Dr. Baswati. If you're here then you definitely heard a lot of potty talk, which is always a hot topic if you're interested in Ayurveda. Dr. Paswati also gave one of my favorite answers ever when I asked the question, what is one thing we can do right now to connect with the natural world and bring more harmony into our lives? And she said that we should put out water for birds and animals. As humans, we have been responsible for so much of the water scarcity that the world is currently facing. So it's such a small but powerful gesture to offer water back to the animals that are suffering because of our actions. I especially feel this being in LA, so I hope you feel compelled to put water out for the animals near where you live. Okay, I'm wishing everyone a wonderful week. And I'll see you on the internet or on the trail. Bye. You just listened to an episode of the Our Nature podcast. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it. Thank you so much for listening. Stay curious, and I'll see you next week.